And if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're on page 1178 of the Pew Bible, if you're using that. 1 Timothy chapter 4, which is page 1178 of our Pew Bible. As we begin this morning, I want to start off by making what I think is an important distinction, an important distinction. In our sermon this morning, we're going to be talking about apostasy, apostasy. Apostasy is a Greek word from the Greek New Testament, which means literally to turn away. Over time, this general word for turning away or changing direction developed a very specific meaning. And so today, apostasy refers to a person who was within the church, a person who once claimed to be a Christian, who then turns and denies the gospel. Now, here's an important distinction. A Christian may fall into sin, but not fall into apostasy. A Christian may fall into sin, but not fall into apostasy. They are not the same thing. For example, a pastor or an influential Christian leader may have an inappropriate relationship or a problem with addiction or substance abuse. This, of course, is extremely serious. They need to repent, and usually they need to give up their title or their role in the church. However, this is not apostasy. They can be restored personally, and they should remain as a faithful member of a local church. Apostasy is different. Apostasy, especially today, especially in the moment in which we're living, is when an influential, especially influential Christian leader falls morally, falls personally, but then chooses to adapt their theology to their fall. Apostasy is what happens when anyone falls and your sin struggles then become the basis for your theology, your beliefs, your teachings. We've seen it. We've all seen it. Instead of humbling themselves, divesting themselves of their influence and role in the church and seeking forgiveness and restoration, they instead use this, quote, minor setback, end quote, to, if anything, enhance their personal brand. I've decided this morning not to name any names here because I'm not sure these names should appear or even be voiced in our Lord's Day worship, but we've all witnessed this. Now, this is what is happening in Ephesus. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that some from their own number, that is, elders in the church, would become false teachers. Paul warns, quote, from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverted things to draw away the disciples after them. That word perverted or twisted is another form of the same word we get the word apostasy from, to turn or to twist or to corrupt. These elders were not content simply to pursue their lusts, and their newborn and newfound ideology. Rather, they wanted, as they found this ideology, to lure others along with them. And men like this and women have been devastating the American church for years. 
You see, the fair play side of us, we sort of, because of fair play, we kind of expect that if someone is, say, a bishop or an elder in the church and they become an atheist, that they'll leave their post. They'll just sort of step down. That seems fair. But, you know, historically they don't. They don't want to give up the power, the attention, and the influence. So instead they remain and seek to lead others into their apostasy. We have to accept that. All the major Protestant denominations have now fallen into ruin because they did not see this coming. They just assumed that people who hated Christian truth would not want to be in the church. But the absolute opposite was true. They stayed, and they worked, and they perverted. That is what Timothy is up against in Ephesus. He is young, he is new, but he has the backing of Paul, and more importantly, he has the gifting of the Holy Spirit. In today's passage, we'll hear Apostle Paul's approach to apostasy inside the Ephesian church, and from that, I hope we can discern a pattern of resistance for our own day. So please stand as we read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. Now the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And this is that word of God. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Even, Father, as Paul tells us here, that our food and lives are consecrated and made holy by your word, so we pray this morning, by the reading and preaching of your word, we might be consecrated unto you in body and soul, that no part of our lives would be left untouched, but that the whole would be devoted to you. We thank you and praise you, Father, that this is indeed your will for us, that in body, in the things of the earth, and in soul, the things of heaven, we should be consecrated to your Son. Strengthen us in that, then we pray this day, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. When we began our study of First Timothy, uh, you might remember, I know it was a lot of months ago, but... You might remember that I took us for a few moments back to the Garden of Eden. In fact, we've gone back there actually a couple of times now in order to understand this letter. Now, that might seem odd to you, especially if you're visiting, you weren't here for the whole series. But there's a really good reason for it. In the Garden, Satan didn't just tempt Eve. He didn't just tempt her. He didn't just show her something lovely, some fruit, and urge her to give in to the allure of the forbidden. Rather, if you go back and look, he started off by counseling her, by counseling her. 
If you look at his little speech, it's sermonic. It has a sermonic quality to it. It's theological. It's persuasive. In fact, in his little speech to Eve, he asks some of the greatest theological questions of all time. He asks Eve, has God really said? It's one of the great questions. In other words, can we really know anything about God? Because we really know what his will is. How do we know what truth is? And then from there, he planted in her mind the notion that God did not love her. Not really. In Satan's configuration, God was actually a little threatened by Adam and Eve and didn't want them to have their best life. He was holding them back. It was, we might say, very philosophical. Well, we all know what happened. Paul touched on it on, in chapter 2 of this letter. Eve listened, and we, her children, have been listening ever since. Eve became that day the first heretic, and Adam soon followed by knowingly following and embracing a lie, which is even worse. Now, if you let that sink in, really sink in, I think you'll come to a fairly shocking realization. The first two members of Christ's church, the first two believers in history, the first two people who were saved by grace were both apostates. In fact, it was the first sin God ever forgave on this planet. Therefore, it really shouldn't be all that surprising that the church has been locked ever since in a fierce conflict over the truth, of, in a fierce conflict over apostasy. But with Christ's death and resurrection, that conflict has intensified as never before since the Garden of Eden. As never before since that time, all humanity is faced with a climactic decision to eat of the tree of the life in Christ and live or to continue in the rebellion of our first parents. Can you see then how Jesus' accomplished work has provoked the crisis, made it worse in many ways? How it has, in, in some sense, put all humanity back into the garden of testing. For many centuries, the good news was known only to small pockets of people here and there. But now through Christ, God is calling the whole world, all people, to be reconciled. Such an offer, though generous and gracious beyond comprehension, has also created a moment of testing, a moment of testing greater than even the garden. Now in that context, can you see why false teaching in full intensity, began almost the moment the New Testament church was born. Here before us this morning is the church in Ephesus, the church Timothy is serving, a church that Paul planted himself just a few years ago. Here are elders who Paul himself ordained to their office, but here also is a church that according to Paul in Acts 20, would be the target of intense false teaching in the very first generation and from the elders themselves. Now, I would argue the same threat is with us today and that it is the greatest threat this church or any church will ever face. And I believe this passage offers to us some really helpful direction 
on how we might respond to this, our greatest threat. So let's consider together this morning some of the lessons Paul offers to Timothy in our text. I think the first lesson for both Timothy and for us as Christians is simply this. We are to remain vigilant. We are to remain vigilant. Paul begins in verse 1 by saying, Now the Spirit expressly or clearly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. The threat of apostasy is something the Holy Spirit has expressly predicted. Paul uses a word here in Greek for incredibly clear. Paul wants to emphasize how clear this prediction has been. There's no question about it. In the last days, there will be apostasy, and the Spirit wants us to realize this. Unfortunately, I think we often misread this clear prediction from the Spirit. For one thing, we often fail to realize or appreciate that we are, right now, living in the last days, in the latter times. Because of popular and misleading Christian entertainment, most Christians, unfortunately, I think, think that the last days are something yet to come. They imagine a time when the Antichrist puts barcodes on people's foreheads and the rivers all turn to blood. Since that is not happening, they look into the distance for these last days. However, that is not the teaching of the New Testament. In the New Testament, the last days is a reference to the entire period between Jesus' two comings. So for starters, the last days began with the death, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times. The author of Hebrews sums it up and sums all redemptive history up this way. You heard this earlier. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In fact, the very first New Testament sermon began with this declaration that we are in the last days. As the Spirit was descending on the New Testament church, people of Jerusalem were bewildered by the ability of these new Christians to speak in so many languages and so many tongues. Peter began his explanation, his sermon really, by quoting the prophet Joel. This is what Peter said. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter urged the crowds to appreciate the times they were living in. We could spend a lot more time on this here, but let me sum it up for the sake of our, our time this morning. The New Testament authors understand far more clearly than we do, and we need to recover this, that Jesus' life death, and especially his resurrection, have set in motion the final act of human history. There are no more outstanding, still-to-come acts of redemption. It is finished. The final act of the play has begun. There will be no more interludes. Surely, for all its flaws, the Roman Catholic Catechism is insightful when it says, 
quote, by his coming, the Holy Spirit causes the world to enter into the last days, the time of the church, the kingdom already inherited, though not yet consummated. In other words, God has escalated the war. So what the Spirit is predicting here in this first verse is directly applicable to us. It's a call to vigilance for you, for me, our church, our denomination, and any other Christian organization. The wonderful theologian uh, Gerhardus Voss says that Paul emphasized the clarity of the Spirit's message here so that we can know that this prediction is not just the viewpoint of one cranky, pessimistic person, but, quote, a piece of actual prophetic revelation. The last days, then, are days of incredible expansion, we see that, and incredible opposition. And so John writes these same group of churches in his first letter, and he says, children, what? It is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have already come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, that's apostasy, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So then, vigilance in the Spirit is the first lesson. In his second lesson for Timothy, Paul urges Timothy and us to use discernment in our struggle with apostasy. Discernment. Look again at verse 1, beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. There's our vigilance. Here's the discernment. They're going to do this by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits And teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's the battle plan for apostasy. Timothy then is called here to discern, through Paul's teaching, to discern the true origins, the true origins of this false teaching. Yes, uh, men with seared consciences, uh, they will be the advocates, they'll be the public face of the apostasy, but they are not the source. Paul is clear. The source is demonic. Now, that might not have been the easiest thing, actually, for Timothy to have discerned. On the surface, if you had gone to Ephesus when this was written, on the surface, what you would have seen were respectable men. These were elders in the church. If you look through this letter at their beliefs, what they believed, they don't seem to be very demonic. They weren't calling for child sacrifice or drawing pentagrams on the wall of the church. No, they were interested in Jewish myths. They called for asceticism. That is, that people should give up marriage and other pleasures and certain foods. Now, this doesn't sound very demonic, does it? It's a kind of thing, if I said it today, you would think me a little extreme. But not demonic, surely. But Timothy and the church need to remember that the forces of darkness are nothing if they are not flexible. And we need to understand this. You see, the demons don't care all that much how they get someone away from Christ so long as they do. If they can convince you 
to live an outrageously immoral life of selfishness, that's a win. On the other hand, if they can, as here, convince you into a religious life of self-salvation and trying harder and self-improvement and asceticism, that also is a win. In fact, that will not only damn your soul, it will also make you entirely miserable, which will bring them pleasure as well. Therefore, Paul calls on us and Timothy to see past the masks, past the particular strategy, and discern the inner layers. The demonic usually isn't going to come to us directly. They're far too clever for that. Even Satan, remember, even Satan took the form of what? He took the form of a serpent. Why did he do that? Well, if you read Genesis, he took the form of a serpent because Adam and Eve associated serpents with wisdom, as we do, by the way, as well. And it's been this way ever since. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells the church, he tells the church that the Greek and Roman gods, Zeus, Diana, you can think of Thor and the rest, They are, in fact, avatars for demonic powers, and that participation in their rituals is a form of demonic participation. Now, again, look, the Greek gods were kind of cool. They had great stories. They had hammers and beards and winged shoes. And some in the church, in 1 Corinthians, some in the church were saying, who cares? Who cares? We know these guys aren't real. It's not real. It's all a myth. We know this is all a fiction. Why can't we just participate? Because it doesn't matter. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, you're missing the point. Yeah, Zeus is not real. Artemis is not real. Thor is not real. But the power that created these myths and holds people captive to them is real. Zeus is not his real name. But be assured, there is a name. There is a person behind him. The angel Moroni, who stands on top of every Mormon church, is an angel. I believe Joseph Smith did see an angel, just not the kind of angel he thought he saw. There is a name. There is a presence. There is a person in all these things. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, of false teachers in that context. He says, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, one demon, as you know the story, he's writing another demon and sort of advising this younger demon on how to torment people. And he reminds his underling that people rarely discern the presence of the demonic, especially modern Western people. He writes, if any faint suspicion of your existence begins to rise in his mind, that is the person you're trying to hurt, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. In the past, robes and a cool hammer hid the truth. Today, red tights, but the plan is all the same. The demons hide. They hide in ideologies. They hide in religions, but they are there. This is one of the things I think Halloween has gotten right. 
Like all the heroes of Halloween, the demons wear masks when they do their best work. So discern, discern. So the first lesson is vigilance. If we understand our times, understand the crisis that Christ has begun through his resurrection, we will expect opposition and not be so discouraged or unprepared when it comes. The second lesson is discernment. We're not to be paranoid, but we must unmask real, the real power behind apostasy. Lastly, Paul calls on Timothy to resist these movements through the word of God and prayer. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. In such an intense demonic battle that Timothy finds himself in, we might expect Paul to hand Timothy some kind of new weapon, maybe a staff that turns into a snake or something like that. Instead, Paul urges Timothy to resist this demonic apostasy movement in Ephesus with the word and prayer. Much as you'll remember, Jesus resisted Satan's temptation in the wilderness through three quotations of Scripture. As Paul told this church in his other letter to them, the letter to the Ephesians, he writes there in chapter 6, the word is the sword of the Spirit. The word and prayer are our only offensive weapons in this battle. To set a good example, Paul follows his own advice in this letter. Did you pick this up? Notice that Paul quotes the word of God in verse 4. He says, everything created by God is good. This is a quote or an allusion almost identical to what we find in Genesis 1 verse 31. And God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. So this is how Timothy is to deal with them. Paul has warned Timothy in chapter 1 that the false teachers will want to have speculative and empty conversations. They'll want to talk theology. This was the perfect scripture to defeat the Gnosticism that was growing in Ephesus. Although we don't know every detail, we do know that Timothy, like John in his letters, was up against some kind of Gnosticism. That is the word for this apostasy. Gnosticism was a cultural movement, a faith system. It was all the rage among the Greeks. And as Paul says later in the letter, it had an appearance, an appearance of godliness while rejecting its true power. Gnosticism taught that the body was bad. All its urges and pleasures were bad and that true life and salvation were found only in self-denial. You needed to overcome the body, which was sort of an anchor to your soul, and you needed to become purely spiritual. Free yourself to find yourself, we would say today. But then ironically, and this was the weird part about Gnosticism, since the body didn't really matter and wasn't going to stay with you anyway, it was just sort of holding you back, Gnostics could be incredibly immoral at times. Because their philosophy said, well, you know, the body just kind of wants to do what the body wants to do. It's, it's a useless husk anyway. 
So you slept with whoever, and then at the end of it, you just said, well, yeah, I did that, but that was the body, and, you know, what's the body good for? And so you get, and you see this throughout uh, this letter, through John's letters, you get this strange movement that is, on one level, deeply, deeply anti-creational, deeply anti-creational, does not value human life, does not value human life, and yet at the same moment is incredibly permissive and immoral, which if you're American should sound really familiar to you if you're paying attention. Again, Paul's response to this is to resist it through the word of God and prayer. Paul knows that marriage is broken in the fallen world, but as Paul confirms elsewhere, marriage can be made holy by faith, the word, and prayer. Or as he writes, the marriage bed for the Christian is undefiled. He even tells the Corinthians that the children of one believing parent are holy or consecrated, same word here, set apart as is their home. The same is true for food. For early Christians, food was a big struggle, as we can see throughout the New Testament. In my trip to Corinth a few years back, uh, this was really reinforced to me very visually. Almost all the meat, almost all the meat in your Greek city came from the temple. The market stalls in Corinth are literally built adjacent to the temple. So early Christians could not always know, they couldn't always know if their dinner was just some farmer's lamb or if part of it had been used ceremonially in a sacrifice to a demonic avatar like Diana and then the rest of it sold to them. Out of that struggle, that intense struggle, was born the wonderful tradition we keep today of praying before our meals, or as we say, saying the blessing or saying grace. And so Paul says in verse 5, don't despair, it, the food and other things in your life, are made holy, sanctified by the word in prayer. In other words, yes, says Paul, this world is filled with darkness, but the word and prayer, the simple resistance of believing, reading, quoting, and living the word of God is sufficient. Now we're called to the same simple resistance. We live in a world that was at one time before the fall consecrated to God, but now has become a realm of deep wickedness. We do wrestle against dark powers and horrible ideologies like Gnosticism. In addition, there's always more going on spiritually than we know. It can be bewildering, bewildering to say the least. In such a situation, we must come to trust the weapons we have been given. They appear weak in the face of opposition, but scripture and history tell us differently. We resist simple resistance with the word of God and prayer. Now step back with me. We've briefly seen Paul's advice to Timothy and to us. Vigilance, discernment, and simple resistance. But what are we to make of all of this for our own day, for today? How can we practice these things today? I, I think the lessons here, there's many of them. I want to end with just two applications for you this morning. 
The first is this. I think it's important as we think about this plan of attack, if you will, that not only we do what Paul says here, but that we also practice it in the way he practiced it. We must practice vigilance, discernment, and resistance in the way Scripture teaches us to do it. We must do it in a way that's thoroughly biblical. For example, here's what I'm after. Paul calls us to vigilance, but not to paranoia or hypervigilance. There are sadly, I think, many Christians who would hear the sermon I just gave and say, yeah, that's right, we need to be vigilant, and they would claim the title of vigilance, but in fact, they're just intolerable people and deeply suspicious of everyone who doesn't fully align with their own doctrinal standards. It's important not just to do what Paul says here, but to do it as he shows us how to do it. So it's important that when we're vigilant, we're not paranoid, and yet remain vigilant. Whenever Paul felt the gospel was threatened, whenever he thought someone's ideology attacked the scriptural presentation of Christ, he was absolutely unbending. And that's how we need to be. His approach to these situations comes across so powerfully in Galatians 1. And a, a verse really that if you've ever dealt with Mormonism, for example, this is the verse for every Mormon needs to hear, and, and including Joseph Smith, their founder. Paul writes, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be damned or accursed. In other words, whether it even, if the person appearing to you appears as an angel of light, you know that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The test, of course, is, is the gospel I'm receiving from that person the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the kind of vigilance we need to have. Not biting one another's heads off over every little doctrinal difference, but an unwavering commitment to the essential gospel of the Lord Jesus. The same things can be said about discernment. Paul knew uh, the reality of the demonic quite well. And yet in all his writings, notice this, in all his writings, and we have a bunch of them, right? In all his writings, he never dwells on or gets into the details of the demonic. His discernment of the demonic is not curiosity. Some of you have that, and I've warned you against it. It is not curiosity, and it's not fantasy. In Ephesians 6, he writes, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, cosmic authorities. But he goes no further. Is Paul there, we might ask, naming different kinds of demons? How are rulers different than powers, different than authorities? He seems to have in mind uh, different ways in which the demonic presents itself, but he doesn't say, he doesn't dwell on it. The Bible, as Paul does here, it, it draws a veil over the details of the demons and the angels. Discernment then, biblical discernment, is not dwelling out of these, on these things out of curiosity or mor morbid curiosity. It's not finding the demonic everywhere so that you can claim to be discerning. I think Dr. David Pallison, uh, writing in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, he's, he's advising Christian counselors. I think this is such wise advice for all believers. He writes, there's no need, there's no need to sort out where flesh ends 
and world begins, where world ends and the devil begins. The forces of evil, the flesh, the world, and the devil are all working in concert. We don't need to determine where the devil's role in moral blinding and inflicting destruction begins and ends. We can't see through the fog of war. But Christ's truth and power addresses all dimensions simultaneously. And so we intercede with our Lord to comprehensively deliver us from evil. The same can be said of resistance. We resist with the word of God in prayer, I said, but not usually in a dramatic way. So Paul here simply quickly alludes to Genesis 1 and refutes the false teaching. He doesn't feel the need to repeat it over and over as a mantra. His response throughout the letter to this demonic system is the simple statement of biblical truth. Sometimes this comes in a hymn, as we saw last time, verse 16. Sometimes it comes, as we'll see next week, in one of his trustworthy sayings or trustworthy statements. But there are no silver bullets here and no stakes of holly. There are no beating people with the Bible, no theatrics. And so first of all, it is important that in our vigilance, in our discernment, in our resistance, not only do we do these things, but we do these things as Paul did them and as the scriptures teach them. So first application is do these things, but only as the scriptures teach you how to do them. Second of all, in all of this, in all of this, never forget that all of this struggle is ultimately about Christ. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our nation or the world or anything else. Paul knew that Gnosticism was demonic. He knew this because Gnosticism was an attack on nature on bodies, on the physical. It sees the physical as evil. Now, now who, who would have a vested interest in spreading an ideology that teaches people that bodies and the flesh are always bad? What, Paul, what, what makes Paul call this seemingly sort of philosophical position a demonic movement? Well, he's able to do that in his prayerful vigilance because he discerns. He understands that Gnosticism is a demonic effort to remove the incarnation from the minds of people. Remember what Paul has just confessed one verse before, the mystery of godliness. How does the mystery of godliness begin? Verse 16, what's the first thing the church confesses about Christ? He was manifested in the flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. Fighting the same battle, the same ideology. You heard John earlier write this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. John and Paul realized that this wasn't about philosophical discussion. It wasn't about being reasonable. Now, the human advocates, the Greek philosophers who believe this, they may have sincerely believed that they were just being reasonable. They were being interesting. They were exploring the world. They were being intelligent. 
But Paul and John discern the real origins and the real target. This was about Jesus. This was one of the many attempts still ongoing today to spread an ideology that would undermine the gospel and keep people in bondage. As Timothy Keller has put it, most Americans from their birth through media, through television, through our ideologies have been immunized, pre-immunized from the gospel to simply not believe its teachings because it's so contrary to everything they've heard all their life. Paul and John are saying that's not just philosophy, that's not just postmodernism or modernism, it's demonic, it's demonic. The same is true of our own contemporary anti-creation movements. At a superficial level, abortion seems like a sort of woman-empowering, problem-solving, poverty-fighting solution. And yet I think Paul and John would remind us that Christ was born of a woman and that all people are made in the image of God. And so we might reasonably ask, calmly ask, who's behind this movement? Who so hates the image of God that they would want this? The answer, of course, is the demonic world. They hate us and they torment us because God chose us as his image bearers. We are to them the reminder of the greatest insult, that having made angels, God placed his image not in them, but in mere mortal men and women. The image, that image, they want to disfigure to obliterate, but woe to them, woe to them, for our image now stands glorified in heaven. Unable to tear him down, they tear at us. They hate human life, not because we're special per se, as much as we are the image of God and a reminder of Christ. They hate creation and marriage, and family. It's like a sermon they can't turn off or a sign they cannot but see. And all that is left to them is to rage hopelessly at his image bearers in the full knowledge that the image bearers will one day be glorified in the flesh. And that where once there was only one glorified human, Jesus, soon there will be millions that will in part be hell for them. And so they rage. And that is also why, to give another example, Halloween, their holiday, openly celebrates death and brutal carnage. People today are filling their yards with plastic tombstones, as if we did not already have enough real ones. As death needed a celebration, as if it needed a celebration, under its already cruel reign. They think it's a bit of fun, really. But the discerning believer recognizes the markings. The wise believer instead joins Jesus as he wept at Lazarus' tomb. For heaven does not celebrate the curse, but weeps over it and eventually overcomes it. We could give so many other examples. But in summary, it's all just what Luther famously wrote. This world is filled with devils, and they do threaten to undo us. Or, as Paul said, we don't wrestle with what we think we are wrestling with. 
It's not just ideas, movements, institutions, and holidays. Rather, we wrestle against the powers of darkness. But the good news, once again, is that it is never really about us, ultimately. And therein lies our hope. Since the battle is not about us, because it's not a battle of this earth, then we know the answer is not in our own strength. We shouldn't, to use Luther's words, we should not in our own strength confide or trust. Rather, our hope is that the right man is on our side, the man of God's own choosing. And so he stands in heaven right now. He is fully human. He is fully male and unconfused. And how they hate that and want to tear at it. But try as they might, they cannot tear him down. Despite Gnosticism and every other satanic ideology, his kingdom quietly continues to grow. Today, he claims the earth. He re-sanctifies it through the prayer and word. He begins to take it all back, redeeming it all to himself and to claim it all in holiness. But then, at the end of all things, the last day, he will sanctify all things. In his final act, Jesus will bring together heaven, the realm of the angels, and the earth, the realm of the image bearers. Just as in his one person, man and God are fully present, so earth and heaven will be united in one reality so that he might fill all things. And so, brothers and sisters, watch, discern, and resist. For our king lives and our king comes. Until then, his enemies inspire a thousand apostasies. Resist them, and like their father, the devil, they will flee from you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for these words of encouragement in your word. We pray for strength to resist all that is evil in our hearts, in our lives, and in our world. We come now to this table of resistance. Spread for us in the presence of our enemies a table. And may we celebrate our Savior in the midst of this darkness. And this we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.